Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. And today I have on a person who's been covering, going to, um, seeing what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, was recommended to me by a good friend of mine. I'm talking about uh, Dr. Guadalupe Cabrera. Cabrera. I don't think I got it 100% right, but it's close, close. Um, and she is a... Uh, associate professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. It is so wonderful to have you on. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, Ryan. You really, you know, spelled my name really well, and I'm I'm very honored to be here. I'm very glad to be here because I just arrived from a trip all along the border, the third one uh, in the course of the last uh, eight nine years uh, where I lived. I lived at the border in Brownsville, Texas for eight years and and I was very happy there. And now it is time for me and my friend Sergio Chapa, your friend, to put together in a book the observations that that we have on the US-Mexico border that we know pretty well on both sides. So I'm very, very glad and honored to be able to talk to you about the border and about this project. Okay, so let's just kind of unpack maybe um, some things that you've observed, you said you've been going there for, for some time now, some things that you've observed, some just trends that are apolitical, just things that happen, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, just, just things that maybe people don't think about, they don't um, process, because as we're talking offline, as someone who observes the news about the border, that's not the same as watching what's happening at the border. So maybe some uh, myths or just some, some things that just continue to happen that most people just don't think about. Absolutely. You know what, this is kind of the objective that Sergio and I have on writing a book on the US-Mexico border, the politicization, you know, politics involved when analyzing the different issues related to the US-Mexico border, you know, really take us apart from the reality of the border. And it's not just what we see, it's what the people who live there experience. What is really uh, happening at the border? It's not what people in Washington DC or politicians are saying about the border. And there are three themes that, that, are, that are very important for, for United States citizens, those who don't live at the border. And I'm talking, I'm thinking about uh, security issues and issues connected to drug trafficking that has to do with border security issues, uh, the connection with immigration and also with trade. So these three subjects matter uh, for U.S. citizens uh, when they think about the border. For Mexicans, uh, other things matter. And of course, issues of immigration are important, drug trafficking, but drug trafficking and insecurity and violence is not just, you know, kind of like focus. I mean, Mexicans do not focus only on the border. And the border is more than that. Of course, trade matters to Mexicans, but the border is more than that. Uh, border policies and the different areas that you have uh, to address issues at the border go beyond the rhetoric that politicians use. I remember in the year 2016, this was the first time that the U.S.-Mexico border mattered at the federal level. And I'm thinking about the 2016 election. 
you know, I mean, I, we had lived and I had lived at the border. I was living in Braswell, Texas, and we know about how, how the border is important in Texas politics. But we had never seen, you know, the border being featured or being, you know, a matter of discussion, a central matter of discussion in, in, in U.S. politics overall. And this is when uh, former President Donald Trump arrived to the scene and, you know, proposed uh, to build a wall, which this proposal was not his proposal. The board was already being built, and it started to be built by a Democratic administration of, of Bill Clinton in 1994. And border enforcement uh, in different levels had already been an issue that was discussed, but not the way it was discussed in the 2016 election. We want to talk about the border beyond this perception about insecurity, about immigration, immigrants being a threat against national security or, you know, threats, uh, I mean, to the, to the homeland after September 11, right? You know, we need to close the border because we need to protect the country from terrorists, from undocumented immigrants and from violent drug cartels, those who bring the drugs to the United States and they have to cross through the border. We have to save ourselves from these corrupt Mexicans, other Central American people or others that want to hurt the United States of America. Uh, the border is something else. The border is beauty at the same time, different contrasts, people. It's a third country because in this third country, we have a culture that is particular. Uh, people who live at the border do not feel necessarily like the people who live in Washington, D.C. They understand where they are at, and they have a very important link with those from the other side of the border. Mexicans have uh, very frequent relationships and, you know, different types of connections with those who live on the U.S. side of the border and vice versa. Uh, people used to go back and forth before, of course, COVID and be for the drug violence more frequently, and they they were you know able to exchange more products, experiences, parties, food uh, with I mean with, with, without without fear. I mean, it started to be more complicated. Uh, I mean, starting uh, during the so-called Mexico's drug war that elevated the violence per se with the militarization of the security strategy. Um, in the year 2009, when I arrived to Brownsville, things started to become ex extremely, extremely dangerous on the Mexican side of the border in Matamoros, where I was living at. You know, murders, dismember bodies, different levels of violence that, I mean, was portrayed in the United States. And we, we need to continue protecting the border because we don't want violence to, to come to our side. And people stop, many people stop, you know, crossing to the other side because of the violence was, that was taking part in Mexico because of COVID, because of inequality, because of the, uh, I mean, lower process of vaccination on the Mexican side. You know, the border is semi-closed. It's going to be open gradually. But still, there are many questions about this gradual opening. And, you know, how, what is going to happen with those that want to get to the United States and want to cross through that border? This is what, this is what matters to politicians. But the border is beautiful. The border is is full of culture. There is music. There are stars. There are you know natural, uh, natural beauty. A river, uh, rocks, uh, national parks, and amazing people. People who understand the complexity of living in a third country. And as a good friend of mine, Alan Bersin, 
who, who work in different roles for the US government, for the government of California, you know, he, he refers to this region as a third country. And I, and I totally uh, agree with this version. And we're gonna be talking about that in our book, this third country that is very complex, that it's difficult, but it's beautiful and has amazing people that know how to go from one side to the other one without, without discriminating, without, without, without the fear uh, of living in a region that is different because they have to be living there or, or some people have adapted to be there such as I, 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 I started to live there. I thought it was a very complex country. And the eight years that I spent there were the happiest years in my life. And I can say that today. When I return, I, I feel that I belong to that place because I never felt that I belonged to the United States or Mexico for different reasons. I started my PhD in the United States and I never felt part of the society in the United States. And when I came back to Mexico, I felt that I was not belonging as well as I, as I had belonged in the, in the beginning when I was born and raised there. And so now I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel at the border very well. So we're, we're, we're going to be talking about all these issues and this is what we have seen, right? Um, there's a different culture at the border and many things to see, many things to, to talk about. It's interesting to hear you unpack it as a third country because I've often thought about um, border issue aside, uh, and this goes back probably to 2014, 2015. I started thinking about this idea in my head of the, the large nation state and can it survive? Um, and part of the reason I'm not optimistic they can survive is because you have somewhere like the United States of America where you have you know, a San Francisco and then you have rural Kansas, right? And those two things don't necessarily, they're, they're one country, but they're not really the same um, political beliefs, ideological beliefs, religious beliefs, philosophical beliefs. Like they're really different uh, people in that regard. Um, and so when you think of the, the border as a third, third country, that, that's a, a very fascinating way to think about it and probably a more apt way to describe it than to just simply say the border. Because um, the last time I was down in the, at a border city would have been Laredo, Oh, we'll say three years ago, maybe. And it was a friend of mine. He lived, lived in Laredo his whole life. And he was telling me about the border um, and about, you know, how they used to be able to go across. They can't now. It's a little too risky. Um, you know, he, and he was just telling me all these different things. And it was, for me, it was kind of like, okay, this is, this is kind of weird because I can't imagine living somewhere like this. Like, oh, like people are coming across and they have these guards posted. And like, you know, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just, it was just kind of a, a, um, uh, an eye-waking experience. Oh, wow. Okay, this is the world, the world that he kind of operates in on a day-to-day basis is just different than the one that I operate in, which is also different than the one that someone in San Francisco operates in or whatever. So um, th- th- I like how you call it a third country because it is, there's a uniqueness there that's hard to grasp until you're there. And the two sides of the borders probably have a lot more in common than most Americans or maybe most uh, Mexicans would think about because of their proximity. Absolutely, because of their proximity, because of the links, and and there is, there are so many other, um, I mean, so many so some other aspects that that people who don't live there do not understand. Like for for example, this frequent crossing, uh, this encounter with uh, with custom officials, with uh, border patrol agents, with I mean, this securitization. This, the militarization of security, of border security is present on both sides. You see uh, the Mexican army members, uh, you know, you know, checking what you have in your trunk. I mean, for others, it should be scary. But people at the border got used to that. And it's not so easy. You see 
see all these, you know, places where you can exchange dollars for pesos or vice versa on both sides, right? And this is something that you, I mean, I wasn't used to see, or for example, when people talk uh, to others, they, they use a lot of Spanish. When I was in Mexico City, when I was studying in New York, when I had been, you know, working or, or doing things in different states, different states of the United States uh, and, and in Mexico, I, I always thought that Spanglish was a wrong way to talk and I didn't like it. I didn't like the the the, the Tex-Mex food, for example, of the margaritas. The margaritas were, uh, for me, when I'm Mexican, an American invention. But I enjoy margaritas so much now and I enjoy talking, I mean, speaking in Spanish and English. And I, I mean, this, this very weird combination that sometimes this is a language I use when I talk with Sergio. We, sometimes we don't find a way to communicate in one language and we continue in the, the other language or we combine this language and it's it's beautiful it's 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 part of the culture it's not bad spanish or bad english it's spanglish it's a different language and the food is very you know traditional and and, and another thing that's important to consider is that the border in us is not an homogeneous region either even even i refer to as a third country i don't believe that we can talk about one u.s mexico border we can talk about multiple borderlands, the regions that you know are close to the border. When we talk about these multiple borders, I, you know, some years ago in the year 2014, I was able to put together a special issue for the Journal of Borderland Studies. I co-edited this, this, uh, I mean, this special issue for this academic journal with a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Kath Professor Kathleen Stout, and and we wanted to depict. In the different in different uh, pieces, uh, the different uh, U.S.-Mexico borders from the from two sides. Compare the two sides and compare them. It's not the same talking about Brazil Matamoros and than talking about uh, San Diego Tijuana, right? Or the proximity of the sister cities create different dynamics. You know, when you just cross from one from one side to the other one in ten minutes. I used to live. And I still have an apartment, uh, uh, I mean, in a, in a condominium complex, 10 minutes walking from my door to the U to the Mexican side of the border. And because we don't have lines when you cross to Mexico, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit less complicated. Uh, you know, there, there, there's less, uh, I mean, enforcement and people coming from the United States have a, a, a you know, an easier uh, arrival to the United States. So in 10 minutes, I was on the other side and I can go and drink margarita on the Mexican side. Sergio and I did that anytime that we, we could every weekend. And, and I enjoyed what Margaritas meant and, and the history and why, you know, during the prohibition, uh, maybe the Margaritas were, were invented by United States citizens. There are, there are a number of myths and there are a number of stories of where the Margaritas were invented. But, but there is a, you know, there, there, there is an idea that they were invented in Mexico by U.S. citizens because of the prohibition. So many stories, so so many you know different types of music and and people that have to live on the line. There's always danger. There's always danger in a in a good and bad way, right? You know, it's not the life at the border is not as easy as it is in in, the, in big cities. There's always you know you have to cross to the other side. You know, you can be stopped by the border patrol agent. You can be you know you can be mistreated by the department. Of Homeland Security, the CBP officer. So you're you're used to that. You're used to, uh, I mean, to see these contrasts between the cities. You see one world, and then you see the 
the other the other country, right? Um, all these inequalities, you know, sometimes surprise you at the beginning, but then you you work on that and you start to I mean to value the life on the side that you are at because you have good things on one side and good things on the other side. And it's it's just fantastic. And and there's so much more things to see at the border than what our politicians say when they refer to the border and they just talk about security and immigration. Okay, so you, you talked about <clears throat> excuse me, um, kind of the, the security just from that standpoint at the border um, and, and the ability to cross back and forth. Forth, how has that impacted the people who live along the border um, on their day to day? Their ability to trade, their ability just to break bread with someone across the border. Um, do they are they, are they is there still a willingness to go and to cross despite maybe it's more cumbersome now, um, or, or are they a little bit a little bit more hesitant because it's it's more of a an inconvenience and it has that kind of um, I don't want to separated but just kind of put a a division between these these border cities. Well, this is this this question is very interesting. It depends on your necessity and it depends on on your decisions, right? I mean, you know, I didn't have to cross to Mexico all the time, but I'm Mexican. So I wanted to feel Mexico, you know, and I had friends that were not afraid to cross. We I arrived at a very complicated time uh, in the history of my border, of the border I was living at. Because at that time, the two very violent groups of organized crime, the Cetas and the Gulf Cartel, were fighting for the control of the plaza. It was it was a horrible. We call it war. We used to call it war, but it was a very important armed conflict between these two groups of organized crime. So at that time, uh, people stopped from the U.S. side, stopped crossing. Many people they were afraid that you know if they were you know having dinner in a restaurant, and they used to do that very very often. They used to go shopping on the Mexican side. They used to go for lunch, for dinner. The food was better. I mean, that was part of their life. When violence started to reach that part of the border and when there were bullets crossing from one side to the other one, they hit the gym of my university. People stopped going. So many people stopped going. They decided not to cross to Mexico. I saw it immediately. And people were, I mean, people were telling me how they, how they were thinking about their old times, what they had been doing, but now they didn't want to go to Mexico. But there are people from Mexico, for, particularly from Mexico, they have to go to the United States. It doesn't matter how long it takes to them to cross to the other side, they have to. They're, sometimes their jobs are on the U.S. side, even though they are mistreated, they are a question, they are, you know, sometimes intimidated by the CDP officers. I mean, I have been intimidated. It, it, you know, the treatment is not always great. There are good and bad officers of course, but there is kind of always a feeling, oh my God, I will be mistreated. I will be taking the secondary inspection. And when you're taking the secondary inspection, the, I mean, the officers are not necessarily uh, nice to you because there's an assumption that you might be carrying drugs or that you might be, you know, breaking the law in some way. So the treatment is extremely, extremely bad. And Mexicans have to do that. Many people have, that have businesses that have to cross for professional reasons, they have to do it and get, they go through that. Uh, I mean, on the other side, there are others, for example, that work as, as managers in the maquiladoras that have to do the same well. They have to, to take into account all the risks, but they have been taken into account and their salaries probably are higher. But it depends. And people like me or like Sergio, who weren't afraid, who like to live at the border? We didn't care about the two sides of the. I mean, the two sides of the coin. I mean, uh, the 
the insecurity on the Mexican side or the possibility that we would be in the middle of a shooting, we, we took that risk because we love the other side. I am Mexican and he is a Mexican-American. His family were from Mexico. So we have, and we have this, I mean, love for the border, love for Mexico and crossing to the other side and drinking us a margarita, a Mexican margarita that tastes a little bit different from the one that the, the ones that were produced in Brownsville, I mean, that were prepared in Brownsville. We wanted to be there. We wanted to meet some of the friends that we had that didn't have, who didn't have a visa to cross to the other side. So we had to visit our friends and they made, you know, they organized these barbecues or these posadas, you know, a celebration before Christmas. Uh, they couldn't cross to the Mexican side. So just to be with them, even though they couldn't cross, made us cross and, and, and see them. So, I mean, it depends. I mean, to, to respond to your question, uh, I mean, people make different decisions. Of course, uh, if there is more perceived uh, threats to security, you know, less people are going to cross. And we saw it happening. Right. But it depends on what is your necessity and what is your desire and how how, how do you feel the crossing or not? So how do, um, on the Mexican side of the border, the citizens who don't necessarily have to cross, um, but they probably miss the camaraderie, the trade, the people coming from the American side, or if just the ability to go if they wanted to go. Um, you mentioned the kind of the uptick in violence. How do they think about that? Because when you read the reports of the, some of these uh, violent wars, um, they're very scary. Um, and if you snitch, you you know you could get wiped out. Your whole family get wiped out. Um, does the average um, uh, Mexican on the Mexican side of the border, is, is there anything that they can do? Are they trying to do? Or are they just kind of just, you know, I'm just trying to make it day by day because it feels like they're in a tough spot. Yes. Um, this is a very, very, very good question. Um, it's a very good question because, you know, I mean, the, the experience on, on each side of the border has to do with as I, as I mentioned, right, with your perceptions of fear, with your interests, um, and your capacity is very low. Usually the decisions that have to do with border policy are made in Washington, D.C. or Mexico City. And uh, they do it without taking into consideration the needs and the, the, I mean, the problems that take place at the border. So there is not a lot that borderlanders can do to solve the problems. You know, there is very, particularly on the Mexican side, uh, there is not a lot of mobilization because of the relative risk sometimes um, that, that they could experience, like, you know, organizing a big mobilization in some cities of Mexico. How, however, things change, right, along, I mean, you know, in the time. Uh, but, but definitely, unfortunately, we're dealing with issues that have to do with organized crime, immigration, border security, trade, those decisions are at, made at the federal level and impact at different levels, local communities at the border. And yes, I mean, you know, electing their municipal presidents in the case of Mexico, the mayors in the case of the United States, the local authorities, you know, they might say, well, you're doing your work okay or not, but the capacity that these local authorities have to decide on issues that are at the federal level it's very little. They, they just they just don't matter. You know, they, they, they cannot make decisions about immigration or addressing organized crime at the transnational level. So people can do something. Well, yes, at the local level. Yes, with elections. Yes, through 
through their, you know, their expressions in the media. But, but unfortunately, you know, those who decide do not live at the border. And this is a major issue. Uh, it's a major issue as well, national coverage on border issues, because it's national correspondents also don't know the border. They go there, they, are, they go there for a couple of days, and they return to put the comfort in Washington, Houston, Chicago. And, and the coverage is very limited, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, the capacity that local media has to, I mean, to express the views of borderlanders is quite limited and it's just focused on those communities. So the ones that have, don't know what, what happens. But yeah, I mean, there's some things that we can do. We have to raise our voice. Uh, unfortunately, the lobbyists in Washington and the intermediaries between uh, those who can make decisions, the congressmen and the civil society, are usually more connected to the powerful interest groups in the United States of America and in Mexico. Yeah, it, <laughs> that's part of the reason we have this podcast, is so we can have these more longer form conversations and hopefully um, get more ideas out there for people to um, to think about and to, to chew on and to, to to kind of roll in their head. And, you know, as you're talking there, you, you talked about, um, you know, federal policy, whether it's in the Mexican side or the U.S. side. And, and one of the things, how are, and what is, let's talk about these caravans, these caravans that come from Central America up through Mexican, Mexico. Are, are these, I mean, it feels like every time one comes up, if it's Trump's in office, the left saying it's not real. If it's um, if it's uh, Biden's in office and the Republicans saying they're not real, are, are they real? How do they feel about them at the border? Um, and, and what percentage of people crossing I- illegally do the caravans make? Because it sounds like, from what I'm understanding, that the people on the border pretty much know how to get back and forth. And so their coming and goings is more business-related or trade-related. Um, so let's talk about the caravans. I'm, I'm just curious, what's the story with those? With, uh, with those? Uh, mass migrations and, you know, the arrival of an accompanied minors of a number of families, uh, undocumented migrants overall adults. This is not new, right? I mean, you know, the arrival of more families and accompanied minors is, 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 is a relatively new phenomenon that started to be visible in 2014. And that had to do with the you know, with border enforcement itself that incentivized the formation, because prohibition incentivized the formation, formation of mafias, of illegal policies that are criminal in the sense. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, for example, prohibition of alcohol. And in this case, uh, you know, border enforcement has, um, you know, has generated incentives for the, for the organization of these uh, groups of smugglers, uh, migrant smugglers. That are are very well organized that they are connected with a number of corrupt officials on the different countries Mexico Central America the United States and they you know are very well capable of communicating or selling their product which is a, I mean the trip from the country of the person who wants to go to the United States to the United States where families are you know reunifying their they're them with their families because they cannot enter legally. The reason why people cannot enter legally is because they don't want to enter legally. They have $7,000, $10,000 to pay to the smuggler. You know, they would have that money to do it legally, but there are no legal pathways to get to the United States. So that's why it is interesting and it's it's more and more complicated, more members of the Border Patrol on the other side of the border, you know, the militarization of security, um, you know, the wall, the technology involved in this. So 
oh, the only way that they see to arrive to the United States where they will find jobs, which is something important. There are pull and push factors, but a very important push factor are the jobs that are in the United States. People understand that once they cross, they're gonna have a job in the US. So there's a big hypocrisy here. And so what about the caravans? Uh, I mean, these mass migrations or these you know, arrivals of people that come to the United States irregularly or without documentation or illegally, as some people say, they are not illegals. They arrive in an illegal form, but they should not be said that they are, no, but not a person cannot be illegal, right? It's just like, you know, in a, in a more formal way. But I mean, a, a, the way that you want to say how they enter to the country illegally without documentation or irregularly, uh, immigrants are, are getting jobs. What happened with the caravans was a very interesting phenomenon. They were real jets who communicated to them. There is like a version of that all of this was organic, that, that they wanted to escape from the horrible reality they have, which is true. There are push factors that are true in security, poverty, you know, gang violence, a number of problems that drive people to go to the United States and also the push factors with jobs, family reunification, it all combines. But why in a political moment, in the, the, I mean, the midterm elections and how the caravans were utilized by politicians is something interesting at a particular moment that geopolitics also can play a role here. So we still have to do a lot of research about caravans. Why at some point in time they were utilized by Trump to provide a message against you know, the other political party in the midterm election, but at the same time, the other political party utilized that to show how desperate people were and how bad the administration of Donald Trump was and what was he doing. I mean, the two parties played with those with, with those images of people arriving to the border in the same way. It is very complicated and difficult to believe that people were just like, oh, people are getting in a caravan, I'm going to go in a caravan. Social movement theories show that people, uh, you know, you know, manifesting themselves in such a way as the caravans to make it so visible, to make a political statement, because they were making a political statement to some extent allow us in where we're suffering where we are at these movements are not going to be successful unless there are material resources leadership capacity um the utilizations of media framing processes there were all these you know elements at the same time who facilitated that how the messages were given why in this this exact time who was involved the unit of, um, of financial uh, intelligence in Mexico froze a number of accounts that were connected with the organization of the caravan. And these accounts were allegedly, uh, um, you know, related to actors in North Africa and the Middle East, which is interesting. So there are many questions still about those caravans. And it's interesting that the last, you know, really visible caravan happened at the beginning of the Biden administration. So yes, probably people can learn, no, if you go in caravan, you don't come and show up. But there are many other questions that 
I mean, some organizations that were covering these caravans in a very organized way, you know, a number of so-called migrant advocates as well that were, you know, doing their job, but that were, you know, protagonists in these, I mean, accompanying uh, the, the participants in the migrant caravan. So the migrant caravan is probably uh, a different, a different phenomenon. Uh, but these arrivals of unaccompanied minors, women, children, men, you know, all that is part of a phenomenon that we're still observing. And if, I mean, also, you know, these arrivals have been used in a political way by the Republicans, by the Democrats, the conservative groups or liberal groups. And it's always about sometimes politics and not necessarily humanitarian needs, because also supporting the arrival of people in this massive way that in the caravans, some bad actors also, you know, uh, I mean, you know, are also involved, uh, that this very dangerous journey can cause people to I mean, death, because they are not going to enter immediately. And they can be waiting on the Mexican side of the border um, in a way, I mean, they, they can be they can be waiting and then they can be, you know, they can lose their lives, you know, trying to, to cross the river. So why and how you take some photos of these people waiting and make this their political statement? I think it's very unethical. Of, uh, I mean, in the part of some actors that seem to me that that are there to cover. Sometimes it can we, we can think of this, right? But instead of doing this work, it uh, turns this phenomenon into something more political or maybe geopolitical. So we have to take into account the participation of foreign actors as well, the participation of some organizations. Uh, for a social movement, you know, it's never organic like that. There are always organiza organization, financial uh, resources, and framing processes. And all of that was present in the caravan that started from, from Honduras to the United States and was covered by the international media and took place in the, during the midterm elections in the United States of America. So we still need to understand better. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say my takeaway from that is you think there's a little something fishy going on there. <laughs> I'll, I'll let that be my words. I'll let that be my words. You, let the, you think there's something fishy going on there. But uh, this, this, go ahead. Uh, well, I am one of the persons that that have been very open about the deeds. Uh, having studied some of the groups that have been involved in the facilitation of human mobility as somebody, you know, as some some academics or some analysts talk about that. I am very interested in that, and I have been very critical about the coverage and about the utilization of a human uh, tragedy to make a political stance, to make a political point. And I have been very open about that, and I have questioned the participation of some groups because because of the you know real intention, because of the the coverage and the funding. So I mean. So yeah, people people understand that I have a very critical perspective on that, but I'm very liberal in my views about immigration. If you know goods are, I mean, and I'm criticized from both sides, right? If you if you express your support for open borders in a world that has open borders for goods, and then you have if there are open borders for good, then you know open borders for people. Let's be fair, right? If you're liberal, be liberal. Uh, um, and I, you know, question the hypocrisy of the United States, um, you know, po immigration policy because 
you know, people are provided with jobs. They pay, they are paid less, but the system, I mean, the system incorporates them and, and, and employers are never fined or anything. Who, I mean, you put the blame on the migrant, but not on the employer. And the employer is benefiting and the country is benefiting a lot from cheap labor coming from the South. But at the same time, you criminalize them. So the ones that can enter are the ones that are better, better qualified, stronger, that have families in the United States that can contribute much better. It's a self, you know, selection, uh, like you know, uh, you know, selection of of employees, which is which is very weird. I can I can think of that. So I mean, I'm very I'm very critical of this hypocrisy, and if 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 it, under the liberal perspective you support free mobility of goods, you should support free mobility of labor. But at the same time, I'm very critical of those organizations that utilize a photograph of poor people gathered at the border to make a political stance and attack a government that is not in your position. And, you know, perpetrating a tragedy in order to access to more resources for an NGO, that's another, that's another thing that I have, have said in my yeah. work. And so, I mean, I don't want to accuse anybody in particular but but my students and me when doing doing some research have have seen how some actors benefit from tragedies and this is unethical and some uh important of course politicians and even some uh people who study these issues also make a career like you know covering just one side or generating propaganda you know, just generate. I mean, covering one side of the issue and not addressing or approaching all sides is is very, very uh, unethical. And just taking pictures of poor people uh, to attack a government, just taking the pictures with a political agenda, creating propaganda, is very, very unethical. And I have seen that happening. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the desire to come because you you touch, you touch on a lot of things there. Um, that, that I find interesting. And, and let me do this before I say any of this. I have mixed views on exactly exactly what immigration policy should be in the United States um, because um, there, it, it, we can get to this in a minute. It just feels like there's a lot of unintended potential consequences no matter what your policy is. And so if you take the, hey, we want to shut the border down and build a wall, I'm over here like, well, guys, if they build a wall to keep people out, they can keep us in. And I don't want to be kept in if I want to leave. So I'm a little bit worried about the the, the wall stuff and the uh, domain and all the taking the property and the government funding. So I'm a little I'm a little concerned on that. Uh, on the flip side, the the open borders, um, it's like, okay, well, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. There's, there's questions about citizenship and rights and stuff. And so there, I think there's um, one of the things in the U.S. that we have to do is, is just have the conversation about, okay, what are the kind of the, the, the thoughts, the principles that you're trying to espouse and not necessarily attribute negative motivations if you disagree on immigration policy? And we just we're at a spot where we can't really have that conversation. And it's sad because I've been to uh, I have not been to I've been to Mexico many times, but never to like a impoverished area. But I've been to Honduras several times for highly impoverished areas in Nicaragua once. Um, and when you go there, what I tell people is whatever you whatever you think about people crossing the border. Until you go there, you can't imagine what it's like. And if you, if I took you there today and I put your family there, you would be thinking, how do I get out of here? Whether that's to the U.S. or uh, to Mexico City or, or to wherever. And so to just kind of to deny that that's 
part of, I mean, the, the poverty is so extreme in some of these areas. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a depressing. Um, and so I, I have very much sympathy for people wanting to better themselves, especially in some of these areas. That being said, how do we think about the policies in their own country, which are hindering them as well? Because to your point, you can come to the U.S., you can get a job, and that's something that, that's uh, great, supports your family. Um, but on the flip side, it's like, okay, well, that's one thing. But also the corruption and how these other countries are, are just operating is keeping their people poor. And it just, it's so infuriating because I don't necessarily – we can have a discussion about where, where they want to live, but their policies of where they're at right now are just stifling their ability to grow. And it drives me crazy that, that, that those politicians are getting off the hook. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think that the – that the solution needs to be comprehensive and should be transnational you know you know the responsibility that each government the governments of each nation ha i mean has it's enormous we not just that's why i'm saying why some uh journalists or some even scholars or some advocates just focus on one side uh, the united states is not allowing people enter but what about the responsibility of the states, the responsibility of the governments in their country? And what about, at the same time, the responsibility of employers? Because if people come, if people continue coming, it's because some people are, are able to enter and they are able to change their lives. This is why we are continue seeing a lot of people. We don't know about how many of those who intend to make it to the US are able to do it. We don't have those statistics. And there must be a lot because people are willing to risk their lives to come here. But at the same time, what is going to be the solution? You know, open the borders uh, or because in the, this country also has a population that is vulnerable, that, you know, people that are reluctant to accept newcomers because they believe that they don't have opportunities either in the country. And I understand that. I understand the position of liberals. I understand the position of conservative groups in the United States. What, ha what has happened is that we are not having a conversation that addresses, uh, that, that address, uh, addresses all sides of the equation, right? What happens on the, in the South? What happens in Mexico? What about corruption on the US side of the border? Why so many people are able to make it to the United States? Just because of the capacity of the smugglers and the corrupt Mexican or corrupt brown people? Or there's also white people in the United States that facilitate the arrival of migrants into this country because, because what happens with the work of these people is just it's benefiting the whole country. Why, if you have to have a conversation, what do you want? What are your objectives? Because there's the double standard here. You don't enter. We don't want you to be working here, but we don't want to see you. I mean, basically, this is what this is a message, right? But but we want you working here because because you're needed here. So, mm -hmm. what is really the objective of the United States with regards to immigration? Want to stop migration? You have all the right to do it, but do it. Don't don't say that you want to do it, but you know, I mean, in a in a different way, the the strongest, the brightest, the ones with more capacities and links in the United States are able to arrive and to stay in the United States and are paid very little salaries. And once they are not used anymore they get deported because you see the number of deported people uh, you see them that they have given the best years of their life to the united states under this very you know you know double-faced system 
that that allows people to to be here. So, and at the well, same time, as you said, what happens in the south has to do. Yeah. So yes. What would please. you say? And this is just a because. It feels like the issue, to your point, is so politicized. And so I, I, I thought, well, what is there a compromise to be made? And so one of the, the, the possible compromise solutions I thought about is, is it possible to open up um, what would be considered open borders under these pretenses, which is, um, I'm going to call it a migrant pass or a migrant visa, which means that you can come uh, work in the U.S. Um, as a citizen for as long as you want. And you could go, but you're still a citizen of you know, Mexico or, or Honduras, or whatever. Um, and it allows you to come be a part of the system, but you, but you go back, um, but you're not, you're not pursuing citizenship and it's clear you're not pursuing citizenship. You, you want to come here. You want to work. You like your, your home country and you, you can go back and forth as much as you want. Uh, you can come work here for three years and go back because I think on some people uh, on the right are afraid of, you know, voter demographics shifting and stuff like that. But, and I don't know, this is more me asking how many people come here uh, want citizenship versus just want to come make a living. So what are your thoughts on that? Wow, this is an amazing question. And, and, you know, I think, I mean, and the, probably the way that I'm going to answer this would not, would not satisfy anybody. Uh, because, you know, this, you know, this country is a democracy, or that's, well, I think it is. Um, so what the majority in this country, the majority, well, it, it, it's a complicated democracy in the United States. But as I think about democracy, uh, this needs to be good for for the majority, right? You know, what does the majority of the people in this this country need? I mean, need what 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 do you need? Uh, you need more migrants. You need open borders, or you need, you know, uh, I mean, a, a system that allows the entrance to those that will support the system. I mean, that will perform the jobs that. That, that some U.S. citizens will not perform and that will benefit the, the people coming from the South. And I think this is important because comprehensive immigration reform was designed as a bipartisan project, you know, and comprehensive immigration reform is not, you know, a Barack Obama initiative. It has been a work that has been going on, you know, I mean, and, and there are very important actors of the two parties that have recognized that immigration system in the United States is broken. There is need of undocumented migrant work in the United States. So how to provide legal pathways to those who want to work and would like to go back? They don't want to leave. I mean, people are staying in the United States because they cannot go back. I mean, you know, enforcement has caused this, they, this they can't negative go back. effect. When you say they can't go back, uh, unpack that they can't go back because they couldn't get back to the U.S. or they just can't go back because they're not they have a passport to get back into their home country. Yeah, they come here illegally, right, or or without the proper documentation. So what they used to do, and that happened with a lot of Mexicans in in past uh, decades, they used to come to the United States, used to work in the fields, and used to go back to their families, you know, and planting their their, their corn and things like that. They used to, go, used to go back and forth. But with border enforcement starting in 1994, with Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Hold the Line, and a big change in the dynamics of the world and production after the Cold War, uh, what happened is that people, it is so difficult to get into the United States that you have to stay because you cannot go back and forth and you bring your family with you. I mean, these are the unintended consequences of border enforcement. If the United States uh, public in its majority would probably think it's best to accept those who are going to perform jobs and allow them, you know, to do this temporary 
Italy, many people are going to be much better in Central America to stay in the country where they can speak their language. And this vision about everybody is an asylum seeker is totally false. There are asylum seekers. There are people that are escaping violence and they're escaping a horrible reality, but others that want to make a better life for their families. There are economic migrants and possibly the majority of those who want to enter the United States are economic migrants. And those who say everybody is an asylum seeker, the United States, this president is doing bad and not allowing to enter. It's pure propaganda. These are forces of demand and supply that need to be addressed correctly. And people in this country have a democratic system and they're represented by those who will make those decisions based on the needs of the constituents. And this is something we need to understand. It's not the liberals are correct or the, or, or the conservatives are correct. In this democratic system, who makes the decisions? And that's important because with your vote, you decide one, in one side or the other one, things need to be added. But now the positions are so fragmented, so irrational, and nobody wants to commit. There's no commitment or compromise that is made, such as it was written in, in, in the Comprehensive Immigration Reform proposal. Comprehensive Immigration Reform was a bipartisan effort that would help this country overall. And that was drafted by Republicans and Democrats to fix an immigration system that is just, you know, affecting both people in the South, people in the United States, and it's putting Americans fighting among, I mean, against each other without really even reasoning uh, how to fix a system in their own country. You know, yeah. you're just operating with ideology, not with reality. And this is what many are doing in academia, in journalism, in politics in the United States. Yeah, well, that's why, to your point, that's why I think if you had some kind of um, uh, a more open border that allowed for kind of a migrant, economic uh, migrant to come and go as they pleased uh, to work, you could figure out the, the taxes and stuff like that. You could figure that out pretty easy. But they're just coming here strictly to work. Um, and then I, I think there's probably plenty that would fit in that category. Now, that, that doesn't solve all the other problems that you mentioned, asylum and uh, on top of the war on drugs. It, it, but it, it does give a pathway for a certain percentage. And maybe that's a step in the right direction. It, um, I, I'm, I'm also a big believer in, um, and this has nothing to do with immigration, but massive policy changes overnight probably have more unintended bad consequences than good. So however we address this problem, we should probably start taking small steps just to try, okay, do we think this is going to work? Why do we think it's going to work? And then we can test it and roll it out because this is a, a very complex issue. But I want to talk about the war on drugs real quick. So I'm a big believer, I'm a libertarian, big believer in decriminalization, not necessarily pro-usage, but decriminalization. Um, what would your thoughts be on, because we hear about the, on the Mexican side of the border, the increased traffic uh, uh, for drug cartels, the wars, would this alleviate some of the concerns on the American side that maybe uh, that if you, you know, you talked about the hypocrisy here <laughs> and, and uh, you know, if America's were to decriminalize um, all drugs, what would that do? Would that have a significant impact on some of the corruption and the, and the things that we see on the Mexican side um, as far as drug cartels go? Well, it's a very important question. And, you know, I don't define myself as libertarian or as conservative or as, you know, I don't define myself in, in any of the ideologies or major ideologies. But with regards to drugs and considering or assuming that drug violence has only to do with drugs, you know, that's decriminalize everything. You legalize everything. I mean, what? I mean, you are you're definitely generating because of prohibition violence and mafias and uh, criminal oligopolis. This is what you're creating, right? 
But let's see, I mean, you know, the easiest solution would be legalized. I would, I would be supporting that, you know, totally, because people are going to consume anyway. And then you're benefiting, and this is the same with immigration, you're benefiting the smuggler with, you know, border enforcement. And with, 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 with drug prohibition, you're benefiting the drug trafficker on both sides because we don't have cartels in, 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 in supposedly the United States, but why, why the Mexican side? Where is the cartel of Chicago? Where is the cartel of Los Angeles? There should be, because of the provision, there should be this oligopolic um, structures that take advantage of this provision. I don't know how. I mean, I don't know why we don't see these cartels in the U.S. side of the board. I'm sure there are. Yes. But, I mean, you know, but there's something important to consider here. These criminal groups are, you know, conceived by many to be driven by drugs. Mm -hmm. If this is the case, which I believe there is a there is a portion, but not all of it, sure. has to do with drugs. Okay, so if we want to get, uh, I mean, if we want to eliminate that part, you know, allow everybody to consume what they want. You know, I'm sorry, but also provide, you know access to i mean you know to infrastructure and particularly in mexico because in the developed world we have you know more attention to drug addicts i mean to drug consumers but not in mexico so of course i understand the conservative notions of this but you know really what has happened during this so-called war on drugs in the united states and mexico particularly in the united states drugs are consumed in the highest levels in history right now so all the billions of dollars that have been spelled of the drug enforcement agency have been totally failed. You have failed drug policy overall, failed drug wars. So we then liberalize it all. I, I, I am sure about that. But these groups are going to find another business. And because of the corrupt networks that operate transnationally, and because of the incentives of different kinds, once the provision of alcohol and the, the provision of drugs started, and then, you know, you have the mafias of alcohol, and now you have drug cartels. So if we don't if we don't fix you know these incentives this corruption networks that exist we're not going to fix the problem so what i want to say here is drug uh liberalization or i mean the liberalization of all drugs or the legalization of all drugs might help but might not solve the problem of the so-called conceived drug violence in mexico because a lot of the the groups are not dedicated only to drugs, have diversified their activities, they do kidnapping, they, they, they commit extortion, they, they are dedicated to theft fuel, to human smuggling, you know, now they dedicate to several activities. So we have to address the issue of corruption too, and the incentives and perverse incentives that exist transnationally, um, binationally, I mean, when talking about the United States and Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't fix, you know, legalizing drugs would not fix all of the all of the issues. But I do think, you know, um, I don't know the numbers on human trafficking or, you know, the, the fuel theft, the oil theft in Mexico is a huge problem. And that's a PMEX and government issue. They have to fix that on their own. When they want to stop that problem, they can, uh, much like they can in Nigeria. It's just it's just not a, it's not a uh, priority for them. Um, but, you know, some of these other areas, um, I'm not sure how much revenue those bring in. I could, I would assume kidnapping for ransom is not a big, huge business. Drugs is a big, huge business. So it would be a pretty big blow. How much of a blow, you know, I don't know. But it would be, the ripple would be pretty substantial because it would go from the cartels to the local officials to the police to, you know, it, it would be all kinds of folks, you know, the border agents on both sides. It would be a lot of, a lot of uh, concern. 
Um, listen, we are up against the clock. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, the book is coming out um, when and where do you want people to go if they want to follow your work? Is it uh, Twitter, uh, website, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn? Um, where do you want them to go? Yes, uh, first of all about the book, uh, Frontera, A Journey Along the U.S.-Mexico Border. Uh, it's going to be co-authored with Sergio Chapa, my great friend, almost my brother. Uh, you know, he's a reporter at Bloomberg, and he has been working in different media outlets. Uh, I started, uh, I mean, you know, traveling with him in 2013. So this book is going to be completed in October, and it's going to be published by the beginning of 2022. And yes, I just have, I don't have a lot of, you know, social media uh, accounts. I just have a Twitter account. It's at G-C-O-R-R-E-A. C as in cat, A as in animal, B as in brother, E as in elephant, R as in animal, R as in rabbit, sorry, A as in animal. G Correa Cabrera together, at G Correa Cabrera. That's my, my Twitter account. And I don't have a Facebook account or Instagram. Uh, but you know, you'll, you'll probably, um, you know, listen to our book is going to be published by, by Texas Christian university press. And we'll, we'll be talking about it next year. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, you know, I know Sergio pretty well, just getting to know you. So I'm excited to hear, uh, the book. Love to get you both on, uh, when the book comes out to talk about it. Um, and maybe we should record a podcast like at the border. That'd be pretty cool to do that. Uh, talking about so thank you so much for your time. Uh, listeners, we will be back. We've got two more episodes this week, so we'll talk to you 